Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In Podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Lou. Hello. Hello, divers. It was a dark and foggy night. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I've got. (laughs) Divers, our theme today is ghost stories, and I was trying to think of a ghostly introduction, but the reality is that Louise and I are sitting on her back porch in blazing sun. (laughs) We can't see our screens. (laughs) We are sweltering and it's very hard to sort of come up with foggy, ghostly introductions in that sort of environment. Very hard to take it seriously. Yeah. Today we're going to be diving into poltergeists, sepulchres, ectoplasm, banshees, phantoms, wraiths and things that go bump in the night. Mm. (laughs) We have a bit of everything today. We have a new release And we have some very classic ghost stories from the past, which I think if you like a good ghost story, the ones we've got are sort of essential starting points. Did you want to kick off first with yours, Lou? Yes, I've been so looking forward to this episode. And I've chosen two very different books for today. One is considered a classic ghostly gothic tale and the other one very contemporary ghostly novel that I think deserves a great deal of fuss. So my first ghostly book I read is The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This is a novella which he wrote in 1898, sort of mid to late career. He was, as many of you will already know, an American He was born to a very privileged family and he decided that a Harvard Law career was not for him and he travelled, as many wealthy young men did throughout Europe, eventually settling in England. And indeed, he became a citizen of the UK before he died in 1916. I did not know that. Yeah. He was a contemporary of Robert Louis Stevenson, Longfellow, Joseph Conran and, of course, Edith Wharton. And I think Portrait of a Lady is probably one of his best well-known stories. And I remember enjoying that. Yeah. Um, Read it a long time ago. Yeah. I've also read The Ambassadors. Yeah. But I do have to say, I do not have the tolerance for his writing that I had in my 20s. No. I was struck when I started to read this book that James's sentence structure has this affectation to it. Yeah. And it makes it clunky. And I hate to say, I I found it quite indulgent at times. And if I can draw a comparison to George Eliot and Middlemarch, I really lost myself in the rhythm of George Eliot. And I wasn't bothered by the denseness of the prose eventually, you know, after having read the first hundred pages. Yeah, once you get into the the rhythm of it. Yeah. But even for a novella, uh, when I started The Turn of the Screw, I thought, how am I going to get through this? It's not a great beginning, Lou. It's not. I know. Sorry. (laughs) You're not selling it. (laughs) Give me time. Give me time. My edition, the writing is so tiny, which was fine when I'm 27, (laughs) but not now. So I, I gave up reading it and I found that on my Audible membership, Virginia, The Turn of the Screw is a free book. And, and even better, it is narrated by Emma Thompson. Oh, brilliant. It could not have been a better experience. Oh, you turned that around, Luke. (laughs) Seriously. I was looking a bit worried for a moment. Where's this podcast going? It is the most fabulous listen. So all of you, even if you don't have an Audible membership, get a free trial. Listen to Emma Thompson. Oh, my goodness. She must have done so much work because it's not an easy read, and it was this incredible listening experience. She's so clever. Yeah. She's so brilliant. And there's an interesting background to The Turn of the Screw. According to uh, Henry James's biographer, whom's Colm Tobin, in 1895, James was really depressed. He was prone to depression. And he met 
the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yep. And he told him the story that yep. James then recorded in his diary. So I'm just going to read the note from James's diary. It's the house of Hadley or something, is that it? Or are we talking about different stories maybe? I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. So right. the note that James made in his diary was, he told me the story of young children left to the care of servants in an old country house through the death, presumably, of their parents. So the Archbishop of Canterbury told him this story, and then several years later, it's obviously fested with James, he, he begins the turn of the screw with an unknown group of people who have gathered in a country home to swap ghost stories. And there's a gentleman narrator, Douglas, and he eventually produces the manuscript of an account written by a woman of her experience as a young governess many years earlier. And then the book sort of immediately shifts to the perspective of that young governess and she becomes the narrator of the story. And it seems a bit of a clumsy sort of introduction and a, a sort of an odd way to commence the book, but I think... And I had forgotten, when you said, oh, in the group meeting, I thought, are, are we talking about the same <laughs> turn of the screw? <laughs> but you're right. Yeah. And I've got a book, I've got a story that also starts with that. It's obviously yeah. a good device. Well, Tell I, us your best ghost story and then they launch. Yeah, and I think it was to... Make us feel that people were gathering around a fire. <laughs> yeah, all scared. Yeah, and listening to a ghostly story <laughs> yeah, late yeah. at night. And and so maybe it's just that in 2022 we think it's a bit lame. <laughs> <laughs> We've been living through much worse than Correct. that. Correct. You call that a ghost story? <laughs> so the governess, who is never named, is the protagonist, and she's only 20, and her charges are the young Flora and Miles, and they live at the country estate of their uncle at Bly. And a bit of a side note here, some of you may have seen the TV series The Haunting of Bly Manor, known as The Haunting colloquially. It's a Netflix series in 2020. I think season three is expected soon. Apparently it was one of the most popular horror series in the world when it came out and it's loosely based on oh. The Turn of the Screw. Now, you're struck very early on how incredibly naive the governess is. She's intelligent, but she's highly strunk. And the children are sort of her passionate focus, and especially if she can recommend herself to their uncle by her good care of them. He, of course, has said that he doesn't wish to be bothered with them at all. He doesn't currently live at Bly. But she is quite distracted, I think, by her desire to impress him. Well, I um, think she's a bit in love with him. Yes, yes, I'm sure she is. I'm sure she is. So she immediately befriends the kindly housekeeper, Mrs Gross. And Mrs Gross is her only ally. And there are other servants around, but, you, you know, they don't feature at all. But having served at Bly for several years, Mrs Gross has her own shortcomings, although she's obviously very well-meaning and kind in a stereotypical housekeeper kind of way. And neither of these women are equipped to deal with what is coming. And look, I'm going to be quite careful here because it's such a short book. I don't want to give too much away. I can tell you that there are some ghosts in this book, more than one. And James creates an apprehension of wickedness and depravity. And, you know, this serves to make the young governess more and more determined to protect Miles and Flora. And frankly, pretty hysterical in her attempts to do so. And I say hysterical because hysteria seems to be a feature of Gothic novels. We talked about it when we reviewed Wuthering Heights. And for me, it's sometimes hard to determine whether the depth of the feeling of the protagonist is entirely rational or whether it's born of isolation or inexperience and innocence. And there's been a lot of debate over the years about what is real and what is imagined in The Turn of the Screw. And I, I wonder whether James is deliberately confusing the reader. I don't know if it was a, a deliberate thing or, you know, he, he wanted you to not be very sure, not to be certain, because that, of course, adds to the yeah. heightened sense. Well, I, mean, the I mean, we're yeah. well, when I was reading it, I mean, we're talking about ghosts. So to me, nothing is real. <laughs> That's for me as a reader. Like it's yes, all... but is she imagining the ghosts? Yeah. This is the po this, that's the point I'm making. Yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate that, that on the face of it, there are ghosts. Yeah. Well, to me, it's all in her head. Right. She's imagining it all. Yes, <laughs> yes. But other readers probably don't see it that way. No, 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 no. I, I know ghosts are not real, Virginia. <laughs> I get that ghosts are not real. <laughs> this has gone off the rails. But it's possible that as a matter of fact, there is a ghost in a book. <laughs> 
but she's not in a book. She's a real <laughs> But people believed in ghosts. This is the point. Yes, I think they still do. <laughs> but is it not possible for somebody to write a book in which there actually is a ghost? <laughs> <laughs> You're saying ghosts don't exist, but I'm saying you can still write a book where there's a ghost. <laughs> but such <laughs> yeah, let's just agree that she's a bit confused yes, and the haunted. reader's a bit confused. She's haunted. She's absolutely haunted. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I'm not sure, to be honest, that by today's standards that this is a hair standing on end 2020 horror it's creepy the, the, so the apprehension of depravity is is not very nice but it's not what I would describe as horror and I suspect that that's but horror and ghosts don't don't necessarily have to be the same thing either it's one of these Venn diagrams isn't it because there's gothic horror and just ghosts yes. and ghosts can be friendly like Casper the ghost and so I actually found this book quite ghostly yeah it's funny I yes I I, I didn't the way, the way it was written, you know, I, I sort of believed that she thought she saw something yes. that yes. didn't look very very good. Yes. And it has all the elements that, you know, she's in a manor house in the depths of the British countryside with no one else of her equal around her. There's a few other servants. No one she can confide in other than Mrs Gross. It's a ripe environment, isn't it, for yeah. a bit of hysteria? Yes, and, and to also misperceive how the children are responding to her as well because that's all very heightened as well. Yeah. When in actual fact the little boy perhaps just wishes to be with people of his own age, not with an overbearing governess. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting. I do think sometimes ghostly stories are better conveyed by a visual medium because I think it's easier to convey, I suppose, by the standards we're used to today in television and film the shock of an unexpected face at the window. And I didn't sort of feel that in this book. Right. There are actually eight film adaptations of this book, which Gosh. is quite extraordinary, starting with The Innocence in 1961. Mm. So it's interesting that it's obviously such a classic that yeah. it was perceived as being something really good for screen. And, of course, the turn of the screw has now become an idiom, you know, hasn't it really? It's become, was, do you think it was an idiom before or an idiom? I don't know. I don't know if it was in you said. It's probably William Shakespeare probably mentioned it. Yes. I don't know. I, I haven't looked that up actually. Yes. My Referring, of course, to something that makes a bad situation worse. worse. Yeah. Mm. What about you? So my first book that I read is a collection of, it's called Ghost Stories by M.R. James and it's a collection put together by the Penguin English Library. I have a set of them, and they're they're fabulous books. This is a collection of seventeen stories. So I can tell you, by the end of it, I had to have a bit of a break from ghost stories. Just seventeen ghost stories, one after the other, is quite a lot for someone who. It's not my absolute favourite genre, but I did love these stories. So M. R. James, his name was actually Montague Rhodes mm. James. I mean, you just couldn't get a more perfect name for the person. And he lived from 1862 to 1936. And he was a medievalist scholar. Um, he was an author. Uh, he's sort of an antiquarian. And he was Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cambridge as well. So he's a very, very highly regarded intellectual. And he wrote, I think, over 25 ghost stories and they're in different collections and published in different places. And I suspect this collection has been pulled from different spots. So it's hard to say precisely when each of these was written. I know one of them was written in 1904 and I think it was published, most of them were published in about 1935. So that gives you an idea, sort of just uh, before the start of the Second World War. His ghost stories are regarded to be sort of among the best in the genre, and he's sort of regarded as being the father of the modern ghost mm -hmm. story. So he modernised the ghost story by moving away from the Gothic style. He didn't like the sort of the hysteria and the, the high drama of the Gothic stories. 
His ghost stories have a few common elements, and that's these are certainly the common elements that I picked up in this collection. They're set in either an English village or an abbey or an ancient town in France. Uh, there's quite a few repetitions there in, in this collection. There's often a gentleman scholar of some sort who's rather an ordinary person or a bit naive. Mm. And then there's usually the discovery of an old book or an antiquarian object that unlocks the supernatural presence or someone from beyond the grave. So that's sort of the trigger for the story. And as I understand it, because I did start to think, what is the difference between a ghost story and a gothic story? And I sort of went down a bit of a rabbit hole. And having rootled around on the internet and looked a bit, I think the difference is that usually ghost stories are about a person who actually existed or is believed to have existed, as opposed to, say, a monster, such as in Frankenstein, yes, which is the more gothic style. So that's, that's certainly one way that I would distinguish ghost stories from gothic stories. And you can certainly have comic ghost stories, which I don't really think gothic stories are intended to be funny. Ghost stories often have a second layer of meaning or they're meant to tell us a bit of a story or they're, they're, they're referring to another event or there's often sort of more layers to them. They're quite nuanced. So I won't go into all of all 17 of these. I've just picked out two that really have stayed with me. The first one is quite terrible, actually, and it really has stayed with me. It's called Lost Hearts and it's set in 1811. And it's possible that it was actually a little bit inspired by the turn of the screw and possibly influenced by it. So it's set in 1811, so he's looking back quite some time. And a post-chaise carriage has drawn mm. up to the door of Aswarby Hall and a little boy who has recently been orphaned hops out of this carriage. There's always an orphan, isn't there? Yeah, and oh. he's been taken in by his elderly cousin, mm. Mr Abney. And Mr Abney welcomes the little boy to the house and he twice asks him his age. And then the kindly housekeeper, who is very typical of the housekeepers of the day, says, come along, young laddie, and takes him off to show him his room. And about two months after his arrival, the little boy is sitting in the housekeeper's sitting room, talking to her, and he asks her, is Mr Abney a good man and will he go to heaven? And the housekeeper, Mrs Bunch, says, good, he's the kindest man I ever did see. Didn't I never tell you of the little boy as he took in or out of the street, as you may say, this seven years back? And the little girl, two years after that... <laughs> And when the little boy asks Mrs Bunch what happened to the little boy and the little girl, Mrs Bunch explains that they both disappeared. Mm. Mrs Bunch thinks the little girl ran away with some gypsies, but she doesn't know what happened to the little boy. But he was a foreigner and she doesn't think very much of them. So I don't know about you, but in 2022 parlance, I was silently saying red flag. I know. Red I flag. Know. <sighs> so I'm not going to say any more. But I can tell you it was a very gripping story. I literally could not turn those pages fast enough. Mm. It's, it's really good. I mean, it's a ex fantastic example of a ghost story and I don't think I will ever forget it. So that was that one. I'll just tell you a bit about some others. The third story is called The Mezzo Tint. I think that's the one that's from 1904 and it's about a man who is a collector of antiquities and his agent sent him a sketch of what seems to be a very ordinary 17th century manor. And it seems to be very expensive for what appears to be the work of an amateur. And the antiquarian shows it to a friend and says, look, my agent sent me this. Do you think I should buy it? And the friend has a look at it. And he notices that there's a figure barely visible near the trees at the front of the picture. And the antiquarian hadn't noticed this when he first looked at it. And then the next day, the antiquarian looks at the picture again and the figure has moved Ooh. towards the front of the house. Mm. So I'm not going to say any more about that's, that one. That's, that was fabulous. That's more my kind of story. That was fabulous. 
then there's the fourth story is called The Stalls of Barchester Cathedral, which I just loved because he's used the fictional village created by Anthony Trollope. Mm. I just loved him for that. There's a Scandi Noir one called Count Magnus. And there's one set in some archaeological digs. And there's a really creepy one with some extra heavy custom-made binoculars that seem to be able to show a gallows in a wood that does not, in fact, exist. So that was a really good one as well. But I'm going to tell you about number 13 because I loved this one. It's still giving me the creeps. And it's set in Denmark and a man has taken a room in a hotel called the Golden Lion. And he's researching church history in Denmark and in particular the end of the Roman Catholic Church in Denmark. And he's looking into some old papers and a story about a tenant of the bishop who had engaged in scandalous and wicked arts Mm. in the bishop's house in the town. And no one really knows where that house was, but there was a terrible scandal. The bishop got involved because it was a tenant and he owned the property and it's a bit unclear what happened to the man, but it's obviously a very interesting story. Or what those scandalous and wicked arts are. Yeah, dark arts, I think they're sort of implied to be and sort of counter to the teachings of the Catholic Church at the time. And, and a lot of these stories do yes, have they do. religion yeah. with them. Good versus evil. Yeah, yeah, that's another whole story. So it's a very old hotel that this man has come to. He wants to spend about three weeks there because he's researching and he needs sort of a room for his bed and then somewhere to a study area that he can set up all his papers and do his research. And he's chosen one of the few buildings in the town which had survived the Great Fire of 1726. Mm. So no other buildings survived. So his is the oldest building. And he ends up choosing room 14 because it's quite spacious. And he has a conversation with the landlord at breakfast the next morning about why hotels don't have a room 13 because there's a big board at the front of the Mm. entrance hall with the names of all the guests. (laughs) And there doesn't seem to be a room 13. And then that night he goes to bed and his room seems to be a little bit smaller than he remembered. <laughs> and then he notices that he can see the reflection of the windows of his room and the ones on either side of his room on the wall of the building opposite. So he can see the man in number 11 walking around and smoking and leaning on the windowsill. And he can see the man in number 14 who seems to be dancing and swirling and he's a lawyer and he's thinking, what, what's going on in there? And he can see his own reflection as he moves around. And then he goes downstairs because he's left his book in the dining room and he comes back and he notices that there is, in fact, a room number 13 mm. next door to his room and he's quite confused and he thinks he must not have noticed that there was a room 13 in the daytime, but the landlord had said there wasn't one. And anyway, it all gets very spooky. And then the man in number 13 starts shrieking and squealing. And there's these hideous sounds coming from room number 13, such that the man in number 14, the lawyer, comes running out and he can hear it too. And he actually thinks that it's our man making these noises because he thinks it's coming from the room next to him. And then they go and get the landlord and he can hear it too. I'm not going to say any more. But it's a very well-crafted story Mm. about room number 13 and it's really eerie. And for me, uh, because I'm quite visual, I sort of struggled a bit with how is is he going to describe this room that is there and this and there. But he does it so well. So I absolutely loved that one. I thought it was fantastic. And if you like all things spooky, I would recommend it's a lovely collection. this uh, collection mm. because they are the OG ghost stories and they are really, really good. So that was Ghost Stories by M.R. James and it's published by Penguin in the Penguin English Library mm. collection. They're lovely editions, aren't they? Yeah. So the next uh, book that I read, which is a relatively new release, is The Sentence by Louise Erdrich, um, which is a HarperCollins publication for 2021. Louise Erdrich is an author I reviewed in episode 16 in our episode Books That Uplift Us. Her magnificent story, The Night Watchman, won the Pulitzer Prize. And this is her next book. And she dedicates this book, The Sentence, to everyone who has worked at Birchbark Books, 
to our customers and to our ghosts. And that is a reference to Louise Erdrich's uh, own bookshop, which is in Minneapolis. And there's a nice tie-up to this story because that same bookshop appears in the story owned oh. by an author called Louise. Oh. And that bookstore specialises in Native American literature. So the story is grounded around the character of Tuki, uh, who works at Birchbuck Books. And the most obvious reference to the title of the book, The Sentence, is not a spoiler because Tuki is a former inmate, having been convicted of body snatching years earlier. But she was released early and she's found solace and her way to freedom, having immersed herself in books in prison thanks to a former school teacher who sent her a dictionary. Is body snatching where you take a body out of a grave? Well, she didn't take it out of okay. a grave. Okay. Uh, I won't give you the details right, no, of it, but she, she okay. went and removed a body. So now she's now out of prison uh, and she's working in the bookstore and she is the narrator of this story. So from the get-go, you get this sort of overarching sense of the power of books and certainly in Tuki's case, a redemptive power because they represent freedom from her former life. I can see why you were hugging this book to your chest oh, with love when you showed it to me. Book. I'm just going to read this, and this is Tuki very early on in the book. Now I live as a person with a regular life, a job with regular hours after which I come home to a regular husband, even a regular little house but with a big, irregular, beautiful, blousy yard. I live the way a person does who has ceased to dread every day's ration of time. I live what can be called a normal life, only if you've always expected to live another way. If you think you have the right, work, love, food, a bedroom sheltered by a pine tree, sex and wine, knowing what I know of my tribe's history, remembering what I can bear to remember of my own, I can only call the life I live now a life of heaven." Ever since I understood this life was to be mine, I have wanted only for it to continue in its precious routine. And so it has. However, order tends towards disorder. Chaos stalks our feeble efforts. One has ever to be on guard. I worked hard. I kept things tidy. I curtailed my inner noise. I stayed steady. And still, trouble found where I lived and tracked me down. In November 2019, death took one of my most annoying customers, but she did not disappear. Oh. So that's, I didn't want to set it up in my words because there that are no, no better words than Louise Erdrich. Gosh, she's a beautiful writer. Um, she's a beautiful writer. So that most annoying customer was Flora, which I just thought was delightful because I've just done the turn of the screw and the little girl was called Flora. So I just thought that was a bit spooky. Yeah, I love that. So the most annoying customer was Flora and she dies on All Souls Day in November 2019. And she was a white woman. And I suppose the significance of that is that Tuki and most of the characters in this book are not. Tuki is a Native American Indian, as is her husband, Pollux. He's a tribal police officer. And like the book I reviewed earlier, The, the Night Watchman, this book really opened my eyes a little bit more to the customs and the, sort of the belief systems and of a people that I know very little about, but also to a dreadful history of enslavement yeah. and abuse. So Flora dies, and within days she is back in the bookstore making mischief. Tookie can hear her amongst the books, her familiar sounds, making mischief, occasionally throwing books on the floor. And the reason why Flora is described by Tookie as formerly the most annoying customer is because she was obsessed, Flora, and dedicated to all things Native American. And initially I found this quite and I forgave her, really, because it was cringy and clumsy because she fostered Native American children. She donated to shelters. But then you also learned she attended protests and right. she was trying to convince everyone around her that she had Native American heritage. And in some ways, the ghost of Flora in this book represents a metaphor for so many things in Tuki's life, but also for the external world around her, which I'm not going to touch on. But it won't have escaped your notice when I mentioned that she died in 2019. Yeah. And the book is loosely covers a year from 2019 to 2020. The, this bookstore and all the characters in this community are visited by two horrors. The first is the pandemic. 
and the second is the death of George Floyd in their town. And so we experience both of those events from the perspective of Tuki, her fellow workers in the bookshop, and her family who live in Minneapolis. And it's just incredible. And this is Louise Erdich's mastery. It, it's not in a sort of a heightened media-driven way. It, it's just in a very believable and entirely relatable way as to how those events unfolded for this family and, and everyone else who was invested in this town. So, so it isn't a book about the lockdown or the pandemic. It's not a book about George Floyd. It's just a book about these people who happen to be experiencing these terrible things. And, and this is going to sound really weird, but the events are still so close to us now and so present for us here in 2022. I mean, they're still unfolding mm. on so many levels that I felt like I was in the book. Like yeah. I felt like we were all in the book, that this wow. is still happening. Yeah. So for me, it's an extraordinary contemporary contemporaneous, really, read with where we're all at. There are lots of characters and smaller plot lines in the book, lots of plot lines. You know, there's members of her family, Tuki's family, her colleagues in the bookstore, random customers. It's a big story, and I might have given you the impression that it's a bit bleak at times, which it's not. I mean, it's there are very serious topics, yes. You know, it's heartbreaking at times, but it's magically, magically balanced with humour and quirkiness, and her writing is just wondrous. I just love, love oh, this I writer. I didn't want to start the, my review with a big statement, but she is such a fantastic storyteller, and it's an absolute standout for me, this book. I was really interested to hear you talk about some of the talisman or some of the indicators of sort of ghost stories because there's an antiquitarian manuscript oh. in this book, which is a trigger for various love things. It. And Flora was believed to have been reading this manuscript as she died. Oh. Louise Edich employs a lot of little devices very subtly that sort of place it in that genre. Love that. Um, and then, Virginia, if, as if this book could not get any better, because it takes place largely in the bookshop, the book is scattered with book titles that Tuki and her colleagues have read or books they recommend oh. to customers or they sell to customers. Oh so in the back of the book, there is a list of all the books oh. that are mentioned in this book. I mean, it's a book within a book. So it's, this, this is how she's put it in, in the appendix at the back. A totally biased list of Tookie's favourite oh. books. So she's got ghost managing book list, short perfect novels, sailboat table because there's a table shaped like a sailboat in the bookshop so she's got the sailboat table books and then she's got books for banned love indigenous live books indigenous poetry books uh, indigenous history and non-fiction books sublime books is a list tookie's pandemic reading and incarceration books oh my gosh it is just everybody read this yeah, book. yeah it's just yeah. sensational oh, that's louise Erdich, the again. sentence why do you do this to me? Just <laughs> you do it to me as well. <laughs> what about you? What's your next? Okay. So then after I had read M.R. James, I because I really wanted to read books that I already had because I have a bit of a problem where I have too many books in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I can't acquire anymore. So I sort of ferreted around and I found this beautiful collection which is the Virago Modern Classics. They're these beautiful hardback books. They're sort of, a, I suppose I've got about, I don't know, 25 of them. I'll put, post a photo of them. They're just, it's the most beautiful collection. It's one of my favourites and I've got the full set. And this is Edith Wharton's collection of mm. ghost stories. And once again, I suspect that they have pulled together books from different collections because I don't think the whole set was published because this has 11 in it. They were written between 1909 and 1937, but I, okay. I, don't, I don't know exactly when these were each individually published. Interestingly, what absolutely fascinated me was I finished this book and I loved it and I found it much easier to read mm. than M.R. James. A little bit like what you were saying about Henry James. Yes. He is much more florid. Yes. And you would think he was writing a hundred years earlier. Yeah, it's quite pretentious. Than Edith Wharton. Whereas Edith Wharton's writing is Edith just... Wharton could have written this this week. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we've remarked on that before. They were both born in the same year. I know, it's extraordinary. 1862. Yeah, yeah I, find, I do find Henry James quite pretentious, whereas... You yeah, say well, Wharton. Mr. James is very University of Cambridge, and you know, very they're excellent stories. But if you want something nice and easy, that's not not going to be hard work. These Edith Wharton ones are just mm. fabulous. They're just a delight mm. to read. And she lived from 1862 to 1937. Almost, I think she died one year later than Mr. James. So they were exactly the same age. This has 11 stories in it. I will just say that the first two stories have a character named Alice. Just had to drop that in there. Uh, There's an introduction and there's a little preface. I'm not sure we've mentioned that this year, Virginia. So we're back with the Alice. Alice comes up everywhere. People keep sending me books with Alice in them. So I'm going to just tell you about two of hers. The first one is called The Triumph of Night. And I'm actually just going to read a little bit of the opening because it's just so good. It was clear that the sleigh from Waymore had not come and the shivering young traveller from Boston who had counted on jumping into it when he left the train at Northridge Junction found himself standing alone on the open platform exposed to the full assault of nightfall and winter. The blast that swept him came off New Hampshire snowfields and ice-hung forests. It seemed to have traversed interminable leagues of frozen silence, Mm. filling them with the same cold roar and sharpening its edge against the same bitter black and white landscape. Dark, searching and sword-like, it alternately muffled and harried its victim like a bullfighter now whirling his cloak and now planting his darts. This analogy brought home to the young man the fact that he himself had no cloak and that the overcoat in which he had faced the relatively temperate air of Boston seemed no thicker than a sheet of paper on the bleak heights of Northridge. So you get an image of where he is and you think, oh, I wouldn't want to be him. So George, who's the young man in the paper-thin overcoat, has come to this region to be a secretary to a lady in a grand house and she has apparently forgotten to ask her servants to come and collect him from the station. Or if she did, they have accidentally on purpose Mm. forgotten because it's not a very good night. And he's been standing there for a while and a young man turns up with two sleighs to collect some other passengers from the next train and offers to take him back to his uncle's house Mm. for the night. And so while they're waiting for the next train, they strike up a conversation and they, you know, become quite friendly and this young guy's... It seems like a very personable, friendly young chap. And it becomes apparent that the uncle is a very wealthy and famous man, perhaps an industrialist or something like that. So when the train comes in and the two gentlemen get off, George goes with them in the sleighs and they head off across the snow and it's to this incredibly lavish house with several wings And he's taken up to his room and it's covered in beautiful flower arrangements. It's it's beautifully decorated. It's incredible. And he's told, I hope you're not famished because we've got a little bit of business to attend to. So come down to the dining room in half an hour and we'll be ready for dinner. And he's told which staircase to go down to and uh, where to find dinner. So he unpacks his bag and... After half an hour, he goes downstairs for dinner and he accidentally goes into the wrong room. He opens the door and instead of the dining room, he goes into the uncle's study. Mm. And he realises, they sort of say, oh, come on in, we're we're nearly finished. And he realises that they are witnessing the young man's will. And these two men have brought the will for him Mm. to sign. And it's this young man's 21st birthday, I presume 21st, because they talk about him coming of age. Mm. I don't think it was 18. No. And so he's now old enough today to make his will. And there's a bit of fuss and they don't have the right seal and George goes up to his room and gets it and the young man says, leave it, I'll do it after dinner. And the uncle's, no, no, let's get this done. And so they, they do the will. And George describes all of the men that are in the room and there's quite a few people in the room and then after they've signed the will and they've attended to the formalities they all go into the dining room and they're waited on by this footmen and butlers and 
and George notices that one of the men who had been in the room when the will was being signed isn't at the table. And they start their dinner and then George sees that missing man appear and he's standing behind the uncle with a face full of menace. Mm. And then I'm not going to tell you anymore. <laughs> oh, my this God. This is so much better than Henry James, I've got to tell you. It was so good. <laughs> oh, my God. It ends up out in the snow again and it was terrifying. Mm. And, it, yeah, very, very gripping. And I can't, it's another one I mm. can't. Some of them, because I read so many in a row, some of them I've sort of forgotten a bit, but these are the ones that I just can't mm. get out of my head because they're so good. And then the other one that I thought I'd tell you about, which also I just cannot get out of my head, is called All Souls, mm. which is the day apparently that Catholics and perhaps some other people pray for the dead. Yes, and then it comes after All Saints. So it's All Saints and then All Souls. Okay, and it's yes. November the 1st or uh, something. Second or third, something. Second, yes, November second, the 2nd or 3rd yes, or something like that. Which is the day that Flora died, All Souls Day. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this story is set in a huge house with servants. These are all set in huge houses. Yes, with servants. and there's always a staircase. There's always a housekeeper. And a study <laughs> and a housekeeper. <laughs> and Sarah Claiborne goes out for a long walk round her property and sort of off the property and a roundabout. And on the way back, she encounters a strange lady who is walking towards the house. And that's the only place that she could be walking to. And as Sarah sort of walks past and overtakes her, she says to the lady, oh, are are you going to the house? And the lady says, yes, she's just visiting the girls. And so Sarah assumes that she means she's Mm. going to visit some of the servants. Mm. So Sarah keeps walking and she walks towards the house and then she falls and she badly twists her ankle Mm. and she ends up stretched out on a lounge in her house with all the servants around her and they've called the doctor, he's come to the house and he's telling her that he thinks her ankle is actually fractured, um, but it's very swollen. She needs to stay in bed for the next 36 hours until he can come with the x-ray machine and x-ray it to tell her if it is in fact fractured. And so he says, stay in bed, keep it elevated and don't move. And Sarah's in quite a lot of pain. It's extremely painful. And the housekeeper brings her a tray and Sarah falls asleep And then she wakes up and she's in a lot of pain and she tries to call out to the housekeeper or the servants and no one answers her. Mm -hmm. And then she sort of feels like the house is very empty or quiet, unusually quiet, and she sort of has to get out of bed and hobble and hop and sort of manoeuvre herself because she can't wait there and try and find someone to get her something to eat and to, you know, help her. And she hobbles out and the house is empty. And she goes into each of the housekeeper's room and another one of the service rooms and their beds have not been slept in. And there is literally no one in the house. And then what happens over the next 36 hours is quite horrifying. And I'm not going to tell you anymore. Sounds like a morphine-induced dream to me, (laughs) but we'll (laughs) No one said anything about morphine, Louise. (laughs) I mean, this was written in, I don't know, 19-something. Did they give yes. more? Maybe they did back then. I don't know. Um, but, but still, you know, like I really am struck at how contemporary still. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Edith Wharton. And it really did feel like it could yes. have been written yeah. today. Like it's very um, Very, very good language. writer. I loved it. So yeah. I would really recommend those. I know a lot of people on Bookstagram read these sort of books in October for Halloween. Yes. And I think both of mine, if you're into that sort of seasonal reading yes. thing, both of mine would be perfect for that. I think they would be very well received. So just before we um, move on, I just thought we ought to talk about, we've decided on our we have. book club yes. book. It is going to be Don Quixote. So very, I'm very excited to read this again. I read it many years ago. So, Virginia, remind me, we are, we're not reading it for the next episode. No. We're reading it for our episode. So we will discuss it in two episodes because yes. it was written as two books. Yes. Cervantes is it's the author. It's written by Miguel de Cervantes. Yes. Who is Spanish and it mm. was, was translated. It's apparently the first ever proper actual novel. Mm. 
It's got so much in it. It's such a wonderful book. I read it quite a few years ago. And, and is it described as the first ever novel because it was actually published as a novel as opposed to in serial parts like a lot of the books I'll were? I'll have to drill down yeah. on that. But it's 1600. Yes. So it, it really is very yes, early. it is very early I on. don't think people were writing made-up stories because uh, that was regarded as lying, telling untruths and that sort of thing. So to, to write a fictional made-up story was uh, yeah. was a new thing back then. Yeah. But we can, I think that that would be a fun thing to drill yes, down to into because I don't really know. No. And we're well-versed with sort of the English and the European early books, but this yeah. is, of course, quite different. Yeah, so I, I'm, that is one aspect that I am very interested mm. to. Um, so we will talk about that in the podcast and it would be really interesting to know what sort of why it's regarded as the first novel, what came before it mm. that might have been a novel and what came after and what he's influenced and all that sort of and thing. And so tell everyone when we So going to... the first half we will discuss in early June. Yes. We don't know exactly what date. but No, it'll uh, be early June if you want to find your copy on your shelf. Yeah. So a good there's a good month. And knowing us, it'll probably be closer towards mid-June. <laughs> So, um, yes. and, then, and then we'll do the second half two weeks after that. Yes. Because it is a massive book. But uh, if you want to go and dust off your copy, on my edition, that is 470 pages. 1,400. 400, just that first book. Oh, okay, just the first book. So that book. is like yep. as big as a whole novel. So yes. that's, you know, you've got a month. And we'll, um, we, we're doing a deep dive, so there will be spoilers. As with all of our book club books, yeah, there will be spoilers. Yeah, but we will do a warning. Yes. Uh, if you don't want to listen to that part of the podcast, we'll do a warning beforehand because it might not be a problem in the first half of the book, but obviously the second half might yeah. be more of an issue. So we're really look forward to that. To that. Um, yeah, that'll be great fun. So what else have you been diving into, Lou? Well, I've been diving into precisely nothing. <laughs> Because I am working full-time on a political campaign. Our federal election is in two and a half weeks. Oh, my goodness. And I've been literally working on that yeah. day and night. Yeah. So that's very exciting, but it means that I have had no time for yeah. television, music, podcasts. Yeah. What about yeah. you? Understandable. I'm just so happy that you're doing that, by the way. I just <laughs> have to tell you you have my full support. I have got two things I wanted to mention. Um <laughs> I know I rabbit on about, I think I've done it now for three episodes, but the rest is history. Yes, I'm it? completely addicted. I'm only up to episode 77, so I'm going to keep talking about this podcast. <laughs> That's all right. I Go ahead. I just love it. Yeah. And I've decided that what I love is I think Dominic is such a lovely chap. Yes. And the dynamic between Dominic and Tom is so gentle. It is. It's lovely. And They delightful. bring different things as well, don't And they're they? completely different. Dominic yes. is all modern and Tom Holland is all Ancient. antiquities. But they've got a great sense of humour. But I did listen to their episode on ghost stories. Yes, yes. So that was what I was actually going yeah. to recommend on the podcast today because it's a fantastic episode on ghost stories. And they get Arthur Clarke as mm. a guest and they talk about M.R. James, mm. they talk about Henry James, mm. they talk about a story that they think both of them were told by a bishop, which was <laughs> what I thought you were going to tell, no. and where the similarities of their yes. stories uh, come in. I love that the bishops are repositories of these stories. I mean, have they heard of these in confessionals or yeah, yeah. by the by? Yeah. Or? yeah. yeah. There's, often they're in churches and yes. very they're very ecclesiastical. But I also have to recommend just that podcast in general because yes, we it love is it. actually hilarious. Mm. I just listened yesterday to part one of the Modern Olympics. Yes. And they both lose it. Mm. They're both collapsed with laughter <laughs> because they're talking about the Shropshire and the Cotswold Olympics. <laughs> and, the, and Dominic is describing one of the events and it sounds like... I just, I've never heard <laughs> half the words and, and what you have to do in, in the to competition compete. and the name of the item that you have to hurl around and it, and they completely lose it. And I yeah. was standing chopping up food and I was collapsed with laughter yeah. just listening yeah. to them. So if you need a laugh, uh, go straight to the episode one of the Modern Olympics. I think it's a perfect podcast because it, there's, it is. there's literary references. Yep. There's political, and, and, there's and modern And deep dive events. into history. Yeah. It's just And they me, always it, bring the personal yeah. 
And there's a bit of gentle ribbing. Yes. It ticks every box it really for me. Does. Yeah, and, and I have to say my all of my family love it as oh well. Oh my it's goodness. A, and Tom Holland is really into his Christianity, which I am not, and I just would think that that would really turn me off. Yes. But it really doesn't. He's well, just, yes. Because he talks about it in a historical sense and a social yes. sense. Well, it and, had, I mean, it is yeah, so embedded yeah. and he, in And he thinks it's embedded in everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're very modest. I mean, it took me 70-something episodes before I found out that Dominic has a PhD in something or other. So he's actually and Dr. They're both authors. Dr. Dominic. Yeah, yes, they're, they're just very clever yeah. and delightful it's completely wonderful and then the other thing I wanted to say that I've been diving into is on Saturday I went to a talk by a lady called Susanna Fullerton who is a relative of a very good friend of ours Mm. and Susanna is the president of the Jane Austen Society in Australia and she's just an amazing expert in all things literary I think Mm. and she gave a talk uh, and the title of her talk was 10 novels that have changed the world Mm. and I was just fascinated to see what she chose and she sort of opened by saying everybody would have a different 10 and these are just the ones that I have chosen today and it was such a great talk it was funny it was interesting it was fascinating to see what you know and you're you're sort of counting thinking oh she's done about seven where are we up to I wonder whether she's going to do x or y a few surprises in there and I'm not going to say what what was in there because that talk I think is available on her website as a video talk that you can buy. But you can say can you not that our book club book is one of them. Yeah Don Don Quixote is one of them I think I can say that without spoiling anything. So Susanna's got a website and I've been I've sort of been diving into that and she's got videos that you can buy and she's got literary quizzes and summaries of books and and what I was going to say was if you're a book-loving person, you can get her email, which is something, notes from a book addict or something like that, and you can get it sent to mm. you by email. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. So that's that's what else I've been diving into. Fantastic. Love that. So that's it for us today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our ghostly conversation. Mm. Um, and we'd love you to tell us your favourite ghost story or your favourite collection of ghost stories. Or do you prefer modern ghost stories or do you prefer the really old spooky ones and do you believe in ghosts <laughs> yes <laughs> yes yeah we'd love to know that actually that's probably the thing i most want to know yeah do you believe in ghosts yeah. <laughs> so we'll be back in a fortnight um, yes. we've got a great idea for our next theme and uh, we'll see you then bye bye we really enjoyed today's episode thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up